not raining outside right now, which is, which is kind of strange for this, kind of, this time of year in Portland. And, uh, but the rain has started a little bit this week, and there will be a day when it starts and probably won't stop until May, even June sometimes. But you know, uh, I know this isn't the, the, the case in Portland. But in other parts of the country, and actually all around the world, they have these magnificent contraptions that shield you from the rain. It's, actually, it's like a stick, and on the top of it, it's a dome, kind of a, um, uh, a water-resistant dome, and you hold it over your head and it folds down for portability. Um, and all, all across the country, all over the world actually, they call these things umbrellas. Um, and and I don't, I, strangely, I don't see people in Portland really make use of umbrellas. But you know, umbrellas don't really shelter you from every kind of rain. For example, if, if there was a monsoon, an umbrella would fail under the buckets of water being poured down uh, from the monsoon. In a hurricane, an umbrella wouldn't stand a chance, let alone in a typhoon like the one that just uh, hit the, the Philippines recently with 240-mile-per-hour wind gusts. It would be foolish to try to brave a typhoon with an umbrella. In the case of a t- typhoon, what you need is, is a bigger, more secure, more rigid shelter than an umbrella. In those kind of storms, what you really need is a safe house. And what we learn by this illustration is that the more intense the storm, the more uh, drastic the storm, the more rigid and secure of a shelter that is required. This, this principle can be applied to, to other areas as well. Uh, think about warfare. During World War II, there were a variety of air raid shelters that were constructed. There, actually, uh, there was one shelter called the Morrison Shelter, I think it was mass-produced in England, that... Um, you, you actually had, it's like a cage in your bedroom. And you would sleep in this Morrison, Morrison shelter, and it would protect you in case of the structural collapse of your home. After World War II, however, after the invention of, of bunker-busting bombs, and especially the atomic bomb, almost every blast shelter or fallout shelter that's made is now many, many feet underground. But not even the most sophisticated blast shelter would be able to withstand a hit from an atomic bomb. No, and, and even some storm shelters in the Philippines that were expected to withstand the power of that typhoon, they, they did not hold up. And beyond the literal storms and literal air raids, we know other kinds of storms and wars that we need shelter from, don't we? We deal with internal wars and storms against the passions of our flesh. Bondages of sin that just won't seem to lose their grip on us no matter how hard we try. We deal with the internal storm of depression. It can come upon us like a flood. It can cripple us. It can even paralyze us or even worse. And we deal with relational hurricanes, don't we? Familial strife. Relational tensions in the workplace that can be so deeply emotionally draining and exhausting. We experience the atomic bomb of the news of cancer or the loss of a loved one. 
There are storms in this life. There are, there are some weaponry that comes against us that no shelter is sufficient to shield us from. No shelter, that is, except for one shelter. And that's exactly what our text is about for this morning. Will you turn with me in your pew Bible, uh, page 930 in your pew Bible, Psalm 91. And I would really appreciate it if you would read along with me as I read through this psalm aloud, if you would read along with me quietly. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Psalm 91. Hear now the word of the Lord. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fouler snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Will you please go with me to God in prayer? Lord, we do ask you for grace that we might understand your word, that you might make it clear to us, that you would illumine your word, that we might see you clearer. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the outline for this morning. Real simple outline, two points. First point, there is a great danger. There is a great danger. Second point, there is a great refuge. There is a great refuge. But before we jump into the content of the outline, I think it would be helpful for us to briefly explore the way that this psalm is styled, the way it's written. Because the change of tenses in this psalm and the voices, um, the, the, the variety of voices, it jumps from third person to first person. Uh, it can be confusing as, as we're reading through it. It's important to know that the psalms were used as a, as a kind of temple liturgy. Certain psalms were sung. Some psalms were likely read by call and response between the worship leader and the congregation. 
Still other psalms were read antiphonally with one portion of the congregation reading to the, the whole congregation and then the other portion of the congregation reading to the whole congregation. And we can recognize some kind of call, call and response, some kind of multi-part reading in Psalm 91. We see three parts actually in this psalm. Take a look with me as, as I read through the transitions. Look, look, look at Psalm 91 here. We have voice one presented to us in the first verse. It speaks in the third person here. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Then we have a second voice in verse 2, a kind of a response to that. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Then it goes back to voice 1 in verses 3 to 13 which is the majority of the psalm here. Surely he will save you from the father's snare and from the deadly pestilence and, and so on. And then we have a third voice starting in verse 14 and carry, carried to the end of the psalm, verses 14 through 16. And this is the Lord speaking. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. I think it's helpful for us to see how the Bible is sometimes structured in such a way as to be particularly conducive to its congregational public reading. In Deuteronomy, we're instructed to be speaking the word to, to one another, to, to recalling it and reminding one another with, with the word. Actually, Moses commanded the people of Israel that after they enter into the promised land, they were to divide the congregation in two, split the congregation into two parts, one side half of the tribes, were, were to recite the promises of blessing upon covenant obedience. The, the other side of the congregation, after that was finished, were to recite all the curses that God had promised upon covenant disobedience. And then there was a third part. The Levites, after the, the blessings and the curses were recited, recited, the Levites were to remind Israel and recite the covenant stipulations what it is that God commanded. And then there is actually a fourth voice, which is the whole congregation together, after each stipulation was set forth by the Levites, were to say, Amen, and affirm what the Levites were saying. And so we see this very multifaceted reciting of God's word. You can, you can read about that in Deuteronomy 27 and also Joshua 8. This public reading of Scripture to one another has been deeply embedded in the practices of the people of God from the beginning. Obedience to this principle is picked up in the New Testament, where Paul instructs Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture in the congregational gatherings. That is why we at Hinson read the Scriptures together as we gather together, sometimes in unison, sometimes call and response with the service leader, sometimes antiphonally dividing up the congregation in multiple parts. It's so we can speak the word to each other in a more layered and nuanced presentation and so be exhorted to, to truly hear God's word afresh, to let it settle in on us as we speak the word to one another. Now with that understanding of, of the structure of the psalm, let's now launch into the first of our two points. There is a great danger. While it's evident that the focus of the psalm is on the great rescue and refuge of God, we don't properly understand and appreciate the relief, the refuge, until we properly understand the danger and appreciate that danger. 
That's precisely why the psalmist stretches language and analogy to describe this danger. The dangers are dramatically emphasized in order to bring color to the beautiful refuge. So let's let the psalmist take us on this journey and first explore the very drastic situation, the dire circumstances which bring about the need for a refuge. The danger being described as we look at the psalm is not a whole lot like the Portland drizzle which might be uh, fixed with an umbrella. What we find is more like a typhoon where that calls for the need of a safe house. In verse 3, this danger is described as the fowler's snare and the deadly pestilence. Verse 5, the terror of night, the arrow that flies by day. Verse 6, it's the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, the plague that destroys at midday. In verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. Verse 10, it's harm and disaster. Verse 13, it's a great lion, a cobra, a serpent. Verse 15, trouble. Meditate with me for a moment on, on the vivid picture of this peril. This eminent threat allows for no rest when the sun goes down. It is described as the terror of the night and the pestilence that starts, stalks in the darkness. But it's not as though this terror is nocturnal and gives relief during the daytime when the sun comes up. No, it's also the arrow that flies by day, verse 5, and, and the plague that destroys at midday. See, there's no sleep, no rest during the day or the night that can be found when this threat is near. What's worse is that this threat is not an unintelligent, randomly occurring natural disaster of some kind. It's a snare. Intelligently and cunningly set by a pursuing fowler. Hunting the reader and his companions like birds. Verse 3. This enemy also has the raw power of a great lion. The deadly venom of a cobra. And the cunning of a serpent. But also, like a deadly pestilence, it is no respecter of persons. It's easy to kind of hold this this psalm is at a distance. It's, it's talking about error, arrows and pestilence. We don't usually talk about diseases, pestilence. But especially when we're near Veterans Day, we're reminded of the rawness and the terribleness of war, of being pursued by, by uh, weaponry, being pursued by bullets. And we're reminded here, this, this pestilence, we, cancer has touched all of our lives in some degree. We know people. And people in this congregation that are suffering. It's horrifying. Pestilence. This, this disease. It pursues old and young. Male and female. It promises only harm and disaster. It's no respecter of persons. In fact. It seems. That 10,000 people. Who are near. Within shot, in fact, will fall to this deadly prey. This is horrifying. And it triggers urgent questions deep within. Maybe chief among those questions is, who is in danger? Am I in danger? 
Is my family in danger? And what we find is everyone is in danger. The destruction being described is totalizing and consuming, making a complete end of all those that it touches. 10,000 may fall with an eyeshot of the reader, seemingly in a moment, 10,000 at your right hand of your companions annihilated in an instant. Seeing that this, destruct, this danger is no respecter of per- persons and that we ourselves may be in the path of this totalizing destruction, we want to know something else, don't we? We want to know what is this danger? Psalmist purposely describes the danger using a variety of, of illustrations. The danger is the pursuit of a hunter, the, the arrows of the enemy, the scourge of a deadly disease. While there was likely a specific temporal, personal life circumstance that was on the psalmist's mind, he purposely broadens this description to make the psalm universally applicable. He wants you to feel the danger, the full weight of this enemy. So if you enter into this psalm the way that the author intends you to, you will feel the danger. You will let it settle in on you. I think that there's another reason, not just broadening from a personal circumstance, but it's also perhaps that the psalmist is wanting to bring analogy, life analogies to another danger, a bigger danger, and he's bringing all of these analogies to bear pointing to something else. While the psalmist certainly has temporal dangers in view, I think he's also trying to point us to a bigger danger, an eschatological danger, a danger beyond the trials and tribulations of this life. This beyond temporary eschatological reading becomes clearer as we look to the grouping of psalms that Psalm 91 is in. There are actually textual reasons to pair and and see Psalm 90 with Psalm 91. I'm not going to make that complete argument here, but I will point you to the first verse of Psalm 90. Uh, If you have your Bibles open, look, look at that first verse of Psalm 90. We see a strikingly similar theme. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. See, both Psalms 90, Psalm 90 and Psalm 91 carry on the theme of God being the dwelling place, the shelter. But then also look with me to verses 7 to 9. Of Psalm 90. In Psalm 90, what is the danger specifically described as? What is God a shelter from? Verse 7. We are consumed by your anger, by God's anger, terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. So when we read through the Psalms as a unity, we've already read Psalm 90, and we're reading Psalm 91. 90, we see, emphasizes the danger of the judgment of God for sin, preparing us for Psalm 91, which brings special emphasis to the refuge of God from that great danger. And actually, this interpretation and understanding of the danger in Psalm 91 makes sense as we look at the whole of Scripture, as we look at at biblical theology, doesn't it? As we read through the Scriptures, and particularly the Old Testament, we see how disease and warfare often represent God's judgment against sin. In the Old Covenant, disease and invasion by foreign enemies 
are specifically seen as curse that comes upon covenant disobedience. When the unrighteous enemies of Babylon and Assyria came against Israel, they were sent by God as judgment. The arrow from the Babylonian bow against the warriors of Israel was judgment. The Assyrian charioteer with spear in hand, though he was wicked and godless, was in one sense a messenger of God sent to do God's bidding of judgment. And God also sent pestilence as judgment on Israel. We're going to see that in our Second Samuel series, actually, in, in a few weeks. Second Samuel 24:15, God sends pestilence on Israel as judgment. And throughout the Old Testament, this this judgment for sin by means of nations and disease is merely a picture, is merely a shadow of the great eschatological judgment that all the wicked will receive. As sinners, our greatest danger is not mainly Babylon or Assyria or foreign invaders or terrorism or leprosy or cancer. Our greatest danger is God's wrath towards sin. And it's only as that really begins to settle in on us, as we understand that point, that we're really ready to address point two, the great shelter. In the midst of the opposition... As the centerpiece of this very comforting, actually, psalm, we have a shelter. God is the shelter. Come with me again through the, through the psalm. Verse 1, God is a shelter that brings rest in his presence. Verse 2, God is a refuge and a fortress. Verse 3, God is the savior from the deadly disease. Verses 3 and 4, God is the mother bird gathering his young under the comfort and security of his wing as protection against the snare of the fowler. Verse 4, God is a shield and a rampart. Verses 5 and 6, God's presence stills the heart from the fears of dangers during the night and during the day. Verses 7 and 8. God brings such utter security in his protection that though complete desolation may be witnessed, it is not a threat to the one being protected. Verse 9, again, God is described as a dwelling place and a refuge. Verse 11, God sends his angels as guardians. Verse 14, God is the rescue and the protector. Verse 15, God is with the rescued one in the midst of his trouble. Verse 16, God brings long, satisfying life to the refuge seeker. Isn't this conglomeration of metaphors truly remarkable? Isn't this amazing? Marvel at the picture just painting. God is an impenetrable fortress, solid, immovable. And he's also a different kind of shelter. He's tender. He's comforting. Like a mother bird, pulling the weak near, providing warmth. He gently nurtures with the softest down of his wing. And yet he is more stable than the most impenetrable fortress made of the strongest steel in existence. This 
is our God? Is he your shelter? Is he your shelter? Do you know this kind of solidity? Do you know this constancy? This unfailing strength? This changeless stability? Do you know this tender affection? This warmth? This gentle care? This affable presence? Do you know the God of Psalm 91? We all know what it's like to take refuge in something or someone. We all do it. When the arrows of life come, we run to shelter. We're very good at it. And I want to challenge you, if you have pen in hand or maybe even grab the pencil from the pew in front of you, I'm going to list a bunch of things that, that we might be tempted to take refuge in. And if I say something that you feel like, yes, I'm tempted to take refuge in that, write it down. Just write it down on your bulletin. What refuges are you tempted to run to instead of God? Sometimes we're, we're tempted to take refuge in something that is obviously sinful. Something we know is rebellion to God. Some take shelter in pornography or other sexual sin. Some take shelter in drunkenness or illegal drug use. Some take refuge in belittling others to make ourselves feel bigger and more important. Some take refuge in gossiping about messes in other people's lives in order to make the mess in our own lives feel less significant. Some take refuge in abuse, verbal, physical, emotional, in order that we can have control, right? Because our lives are so out of control. These things are Obviously sinful refuges. And in the end, they they don't give the stability and safety that God offers out to us. Rather, these false refuges leave, leave us even more open to attack. They leave us more unsafe. And while we may at some time struggle with those kind of obvious sin refuges, many of us are more prone to make other things our refuge. Good things. Gifts that God has given us to enjoy. And yet we use them in such a way that God didn't intend us to. We run to those things for comfort when we should be running to God. We can make refuges out of entertainment, television, movies, hobbies. We can inappropriately make a refuge out of sexual pleasure in the marriage bed. We can make a refuge inappropriately of food, of prescription medication, of alcohol, even when it doesn't mean drunkenness. We can inappropriately make a refuge in it. We can make a refuge of of possessions, shopping for release. We can make a refuge in fame, and maybe not international fame, Maybe not even local fame, but maybe fame in your field, in your workplace, in your office. We can make a refuge out of popularity or reputation. 
It can just bring comfort to us and we just remind ourselves, well, people like me, and that, so everything is going to be okay. We can find refuge in personality. We can find refuge in friendships. Friendships are good, but we can use people in such a way that they were not intended to be used and become codependent. We can find refuge in dreams, aspirations, ambitions. We, we can find refuge and success in a career. We can find refuge in knowledge. The fact that you know more than other people around you, maybe you remind yourself of that fact and, and you take comfort in it rather than finding comfort in God. Take refuge in children, in your spouse, in your parents. None of these refuges adequately brings peace in the midst of the trials of life, which will ultimately be shown through their utter inability to be a refuge in the midst of the greatest storm that is coming. In the face of that storm, every refuge will crumble like an umbrella in the typhoon under the judgment of God. Do we find our shelter in God? Because it's only if God is our refuge that we will remain standing in that final storm. It should be a little disconcerting to us that the you in this psalm, the the he in this psalm, is singular, not plural. It's not saying everyone who finds refuge. It's not talking about a group of people or a congregation. It's talking about one person. In this psalm, the pestilence and the arrow penetrates the flesh of tens of thousands, but it fails to come near one man because this one man finds refuge in God. This man is pulled near to safety, the safety of God and finds refuge there. There is one distinct man among the thousands who is safe. What are the attributes of this man who finds refuge in God's presence? The psalm points us to three things that distinguish this man. Three things. One, this person who finds refuge in God trusts in God. Verse 2, he says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Secondly, this person who finds refuge in God calls upon God. Verse 15, this is what the Lord says of him. He will call upon me and I will answer him. Third thing, this this person is uniquely attached to God. Verse 14, God says this, because he loves me. And that word is actually better translated because he's uniquely attached, because he attaches himself to me, says the Lord. I will rescue him. I will protect him. Who is this person who finds refuge, who finds safety, who finds rescue in the presence of God in the awful storm? Who is this person that is uniquely attached to God, who calls upon upon God, who, who trusts in God? Do you call upon God in the midst of every storm? Have you always trusted in God and made him your refuge? I haven't. Ultimately, there's only one who has. The God-man, Christ Jesus. When, when the Hebrews were richly provided for by God's miraculous provision of bread from heaven, quail falling from the sky, water pouring from rocks, when God caused their clothing and sandals not to wear out, did Israel trust in God? 
No. The Bible tells us they died in unbelief. However, when Jesus was fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, he didn't have all the provisions that Israel was given. He was fasting. 40 days in the wilderness, and Satan himself came to tempt him. Did Jesus trust the Father? Yes. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as the great trial was fast approaching, and as Jesus beckoned his three closest companions to pray with him, to call upon the Father with him, to trust in the Father's plan and provision, who was it that trusted in the Father? Who was it that called upon the Father? Was it Peter, James, and John? No, even when Jesus beckoned them to pray, they fell asleep. They didn't call upon God. They didn't trust in God. As Jesus was tried by sinful men, and and a young servant girl asked Peter if he was attached to Christ in any way, did Peter trust in God? No. No. But as the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Jesus on the cross and said, He trusts in God, let God rescue him. Who continued to trust in the Father's great provision? Who called upon God for rescue? Jesus. Who is it that found rescue in God from the great arrow of death sent to pierce his side? It was Jesus. Who is the one that is uniquely attached to the Father? Who is the one person in the whole scripture that God opens up the heavens to declare, this is my son. This is the one in whom I am well pleased. Was it Abraham? Was it Moses? Elijah? David? Was it John the Baptist? The Apostle Paul? No. It was Jesus. No one in the Bible, no people of God in existence has ever perfectly trusted God and made God the refuge. No one except for Jesus. To bring this Christological fulfillment into clearer focus, look with me at verse 13 of Psalm 91. You, singular, will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You, singular, will trample the great lion and the serpent. The echo in this verse, in verse 13, is loud and it is clear. The promise you will tread upon the lion and the cobra, you will trample the great lion and the serpent, it takes us back to the beginning of the biblical story. In fact, it takes us to the beginning of human history. It takes us to a deceiving serpent in a garden. We're reminded of that wicked snake who whispered the lie that mankind has believed ever since that terrible day. We're reminded of the curse that has come upon mankind for believing that lie. Death has entered the world. Pain has been multiplied. The perfect order of the created universe has been subjected to futility. And now arrows fly and pestilence reigns. but not without hope. Because what we're ultimately reminded of in verse 13 of Psalm 91 is something else that took place in the garden. In the midst of disobedience, in the midst of curse, we're reminded of promise. The beautiful promise of God given in the curse to that slithering creature in Genesis 3, 14 through 15. This is what God said. Cursed 
are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And here in our psalm, we hear an echo of that first gospel promise. And we, knowing the whole storyline of Scripture, we know that Jesus Christ is the promised offspring. Jesus is the seed whose heel was bruised on the cross, yet he crushed that wicked serpent. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Perhaps this is why Satan quotes the verse immediately previous to this in in Matthew 4 and, and Luke 4. When Jesus was in the wilderness fasting, being tempted of Satan, Satan quotes verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 91. But he leaves out verse 13. Perhaps he knows that Christ is aware of the implications of this verse. He's saying, if you want to prove to me your victory over me, if you want to prove to me that Psalm 91 is is true, that you really are that serpent-crushing Savior, well, then... Show me that all Psalm 91 is true. Cast yourself down from this precipice and see God rescue you. But Christ waited until the time appointed by God to prove himself as the serpent crusher. And Christ, the one who ultimately fulfills the psalm, the one who is uniquely attached to the Father and trusted him completely, calling on him in the moment of trial, this Christ, God incarnate, becomes our refuge. Because while in one sense he preserved himself in faithfulness, in another sense, he gave himself to the pestilence. He gave himself to the arrow that we merited by our sin. And in so doing, Christ makes this psalm, which is not ours at first, he makes this psalm our psalm. Christ makes it possible for God, who was not our refuge, to become our refuge. And when we read verse 4, precious verse 4 of Psalm 91, we read, Christ's faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. It's Christ's faithfulness, not our faithfulness. We were not faithful. Christ was faithful. While Christ found his refuge in God in the face of wickedness all around him, we need the refuge of Christ precisely because we are wicked and deserving of the eternal wrath of God. It's precisely because we are not faithful that we need Christ's faithfulness as our refuge. We have merited the pestilence and the piercing arrow. And yet Christ becomes our refuge. He doesn't call the righteous to find their refuge in him. He calls the wicked. I think there's a wonderful uh, parallel uh, allusion to this psalm in Luke 13.34. Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Christ employs the same Old Testament imagery that is employed in Psalm 91 of a mother hen 
gathering her chicks under the safety of her wing. And who is he offering the safety to? Is he offering it to the clean and holy, set-apart city of Jerusalem, which is, which is set apart from all the cities of the world because of their obedience, because of their covenant faithfulness? No. Jerusalem, you wicked city, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, I have longed to gather you. I have longed to be your refuge, is what Christ says. Will you go to this Christ? Will you let Christ gather you under his wing? In our psalm, the the beckoning looks like this in verse 9. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. Will you allow Jesus to make this psalm yours? The amazing thing is that when Christ becomes our refuge from the judgment of our sin, from eternal death, he becomes an amazing refuge from the smaller storms, from the smaller arrows, from the diseases, in a different way. It isn't that we won't get cancer, but God, as our refuge, takes away the hopelessness of cancer. It isn't that our loved ones won't die, But God gives us hope and comfort even in the midst of their passing. It isn't that we won't get laid off from our jobs. But it is that God becomes more than enough for us in the pain of joblessness. It isn't that we won't have relational tension with our spouse or our children. But it's that there is always hope for restoration. Because the gospel is true. And even when God does not grant restoration, he becomes more than sufficient in a way that's impossible for us to describe. He grants a peace that passes all understanding. As arrows in this life come, we suffer, but not like those without hope. We know that God has turned every trial of suffering into a pathway for our sanctification. We suffer as though those who have God as our shelter, the one who holds the whole universe in his hands. But God's provision even goes beyond shelter. Christ does not only give us the shelter that was his shelter and was not our shelter. He also gives us the victory that was his victory, was not our victory. For example, in in Luke 10, 19, Jesus says to the 72, he says, 72 of his followers, he says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And this, this is translated in, in some way to all believers where Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven, God gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this promise is amazing. Romans sixteen twenty. Underline this one, circle this one, memorize this one. It's an amazing promise. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God will crush Satan and the church will crush Satan. God will crush Satan under your feet, church. That is amazing. Will you inherit this victory? Is this victory yours? The victors are all who hope in God, all who repent of their sins and hide in Christ and his work for us. 
If this is you, you will be victorious. Death does not get the final word. Those besetting sins that plague you in your darkest hour and bring condemning words to you from the pit of hell, they lie. You will be victorious. The relational pains, the pains from sickness and frailty, the sorrows of financial difficulty, depression, confusion, weakness of mind, familial strife, and Satan himself. God has promised you victory. God will crush him under your feet if you believe Romans 16.20. If you will make this psalm yours through Christ. Do you believe it? Now, I, I want to briefly at the end here review some points of application. Three points of application. One, this, this may seem obvious, but it's important that we don't miss the obvious. Take refuge in God. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like to take refuge in God? That seems very. In, untangible, right? How do, we, how do we get our hands around that? Take refuge in God. Well, the three things that were laid out for us in the song, trust in God. In the midst of the arrows, in the midst of the pestilence, trust in God. Believe in the promises of God. Trust in Him. Secondly, call on God, just like verse 15. Call on Him. Let that trust well up in your heart into calling out to Him, praying to Him, asking Him for help, leaning on Him in your prayers. Third thing, remember your unique attachment to God through Christ. That apart, I mean, when we see these arrows of life coming at us and the pestilence, we're tempted to believe God does not really love us. If he did, this wouldn't happen, right? No. Believe. God is for you. He's attached himself to you in Christ. Second, as we think about the refuge that God is for us, stable and secure and protective like a good father, and yet warm and tender like a mother hen, some of us turn to think of our own parenting, our own upbringing. It's a good thing for a child to find a sense of security and protection from his parents, in his parents. And it's also good for a child to find warmth, tenderness, comfort, and understanding in his parents. Parents are designed to be a kind of refuge from the harsh realities of the world. However, parents are not meant to function in a way that, that just points ultimately to them. They're to point and, and point ultimately to God as the ultimate comforter, as the ultimate protector. Parents, while it's our God-given responsibility to protect and comfort our kids, we should seek to protect and comfort our kids in such a way that reminds them, that points them to God as the ultimate protector, as the ultimate comforter. Now, some of us didn't experience that kind of stability and comfort growing up. Many of you maybe have not known the stability and protection in your home in those tender years of life. You needed, in fact, a refuge from the very people who should have been protecting you. Others of you in this room don't know what it's like to be tenderly cared for or nurtured with understanding by your parents. Some of you have known neither. You need to hear me. You have a refuge. You have a fortress to hide in. You have an understanding father to look to. 
God wants you to know it. God wants you to experience his tender shelter. And it will be sweeter for some of you that haven't known that in your parents. The fact of the matter is, no parent will be able to refuge, be a refuge for their children amidst the biggest storms of life. But God can. No parent can comfort their children in the midst of life's biggest heartaches. But this one comforter, comforter can. Will you trust him? Will you point your children to him? Last application. Resist the whisper of Satan. Resist the whisper of Satan. I think there's an important application for us as we think of how this psalm was used in the mouth of Satan against Jesus. Satan was in essence saying to Jesus, are you really going to be victorious over me? Is Psalm 91.13 really a true promise to you? If so, won't, you, won't God rescue you from every other trial and difficulty in life? Won't God rescue you when you put yourself in harm's way? And I think Satan comes to us in a similar way. And he says, how can you believe that God will save you from his wrath on the final day if he doesn't rescue you from the consequences of sin now? If God doesn't rescue you from difficult circumstances now, how do you know that you will be victorious over those circumstances in the future? But we would do well to find refuge in Christ, following his example, to patiently, faithfully wait for that great appointed day of victory. The victory of Christ over sin, death, Satan, and all their fruits. Yes, he proved his victory when he got up from the grave. And he will prove his victory again when he resurrects the bodies of all that trust in his name. Believe it. Will you please go with me to God in prayer? God, you have provided for us a great refuge in Christ. I pray that you'd give us grace to hide in the shelter that you've provided and not to run to other shelters. We thank you for your word to us. In Jesus' name.